All right, good morning, everyone. Happy Sabbath. And Adrian did announce this from up front, but this is a continuation of the Hebrews class that we've been going through. We are in chapter 11 now. I think most of you probably knew that already, but we're not doing the quarterly. We're doing the book of Hebrews, and we are in Hebrews chapter 11. And we got through <clears throat> the first seven verses last time. Now, as you <clears throat> look at the book of Hebrews, and I said this the last time we started this class um, on Hebrews 11, is that when you ask someone what the book of Hebrews is about, typically a person will say, Hebrews is about faith. And in a basic sense, that's true. Um, however, one chapter out of 13 is dedicated to talking about faith, but the other chapters are talking about other very important concepts. And so the question is, <clears throat> what role does Hebrews 11 have in the bigger picture of the book of Hebrews as a whole. And that's kind of what we've been looking at the last time we went through this class. And as we've learned, as we've gone through the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is placing a strong emphasis on who Jesus is and what his work is on our behalf. We see that he is God in chapter 1, he's man in chapter 2, and that he's the apostle and high priest of our profession in chapter 3. And we see the work that he does for us as high priest in chapter 4, well in chapter 2, in chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, and 6 and 7 and so forth. Then by the time we get to chapter 8 we see that Christ is high priest as mediator of the new covenant. And as mediator of the new covenant, he writes his law into our hearts and minds. And then chapter 9 goes into more detail about how Christ is our high priest, how as our high priest he will blot out our sins and come back the second time. And chapter 10 continues to talk about that. We see in chapter 10, Jesus, when he came to this earth, he delighted to do God's will. That's quoting from Psalms 40 verse 8. And God's will is his law. And by the end of chapter 10, we see that those who do, do the will of God are those who God will come back for. Those are the people who have God's law written in their hearts. That's the new covenant people. And so by the time you get to the end of chapter 10, you see, okay, Christ is high priest. He's our, our mediator. And his role as our mediator is to write his law into the hearts of his new covenant people. And we may say, well, that's all nice and fine, but I've never seen anyone who lives that way. But then that's what Hebrews 11 is about. Hebrews 11 says, well, you may feel that you're weak in faith, but here's a whole list of people who were strong in faith. So don't think that God can't write his law into your heart and mind because these people all have that experience. And so that's what Hebrews 11 is showing us. So yes, Hebrews is about faith, but it's a lot more than that. Hebrews 11 is just sort of like the show and tell of, yes, it is possible to have this experience, and this is what God wants to do for us. So we studied last time in the first seven verses that faith comes when we believe that God is creator. 
So if you don't believe that God created the earth the way the Bible says, you don't really have faith or saving faith. And so that's an important concept. Then we see the contrast between Cain and Abel. We see Enoch. We see Noah. We already talked about that last time. So now we'll pick it up in verse 8. <clears throat> and now we're going to talk about Abraham. And Abraham, of course, is the father of the faithful. So there's a lot to talk about with respect to Abraham. So starting in verse 8. It says, by faith, Abraham was called, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whither he went. Okay, so Abraham, we know the story. He lived in Ur of the Chaldees. He had all of his family there. And then God calls him to leave his home and all of his family. Now, how excited do you think Abraham was to be asked by God to leave the comfort of his home environment and his familiar surroundings? Humanly speaking, probably not, but he obeyed. And of course, there's a lot more to this, but what's interesting, and there's some spiritual applications if you think about it, Abraham lived in Ur of the Chaldees, that is, eventually where Babylon was built up. And so God called Abraham to leave Babylon. And it's an example for all those who follow the example that Abraham gives us. He is the father of the faithful. And in Galatians 3, at the end of the chapter, it says, they that be Christ are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So those who are of the seed of Abraham will follow him in like manner. He left Ur of the Chaldees, or he came out of Babylon, and ironically enough, God's last day message is a message to call his people out of Babylon. So there's a practical <coughs> illustration, but it's, notice Abraham, when he went out, it wasn't like he was leaving a good job for a better job or a, a good home for a better home. He didn't even know where he was going. He just went where God called him to go. And verse 9, by faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. So Abraham must have had a pretty nice home. If you study the history, he came from a very wealthy family. And so he goes from living in a mansion to living in a tent. And he never owned a piece of property the rest of his life. In fact, when his wife Sarah died, he had to buy a piece of property in the cave where he buried her because he didn't own anything. So we think of, of Abraham like, oh yeah, Abraham, he had this vast expanse of territory in the promised land. He never owned that. That was the land of promise. God promised it to him and his seed. But Abraham never owned that land his entire life up until the point that he died. So he lived in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Verse 10, for he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So what about Abraham? Abraham was looking for a different place. He was looking for a heavenly city whose builder and maker is God. Now, if 
he had stayed in his home land that God called him to come out of, which was, we'll just call it Babylon. If he had stayed in Babylon, when God had called him to come out, would he have been able to look for that heavenly city? Apparently not according to scripture. But because he obeyed God, that enabled him to look for a heavenly city. His eyes, his mind was set on a better place. And we're going to see uh, more about this as we go through, especially in verses 13, 14, 15, and 16. Continuing on in verse 11, through faith also, Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed when she was delivered of a child, or and she was delivered of a child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Now, you remember the story. God comes personally to Abraham. Sarah is in the next room over, and she hears God tell Abraham that she and Abraham are going to have a child, and in her heart, she laughs. And then God says, why are you laughing? And she lied to God and said, I wasn't laughing. Um, so at that point, she was not exercising faith. She didn't believe that what God said could really happen. But something changed. Now, Paul doesn't explain here in Hebrews 11 what changed. But if you go to Romans 4, this is very interesting. In Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 18, and this is speaking of this very story. Speaking of Abraham, it says, Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. Verse 19, And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. So what happens here? Abraham is strong in faith, giving glory to God, that's in verse 20. And because of his faith, he's considering his physical deadness, so to speak. He can't have a child, and neither can Sarah. So not only, so God's saying, hey, you and Sarah are going to have a child. Now it would be bad enough if one of them was past childbearing age, but both of them are. And so Abraham has to believe in God to overcome his physical impossibility and it says he considered not the deadness of Sarah's womb. So he's like, well, if God can take care of that problem with me, he can take care of that problem with Sarah also. And evidently, based on what we see from Romans 4 and from Hebrews 11, it was Abraham's faith that also produced fruit in Sarah. So because Abraham had faith, it caused Sarah to also believe. And then when they both believed, they bore a child. And the spiritual application for us is this. It's one thing to say we believe in God. It's one thing to say we have faith in Him. But if our belief in God and our faith in Him is not producing faith in other people, then our faith is dead. Because Abraham's faith was so strong that it affected Sarah as well. 
she said, wow, if Abraham really believes this strongly, then it must be true. And do people see that when they see us? It's like, wow, that person, they are so dedicated to God. He must be true. I want, I want what they have. And you see that even in the illustration of Abraham and Sarah. That's why Abraham is the father of many nations, the father of the faithful. And of course, eventually Sarah had to make that faith her own. She couldn't just go on Abraham's coattail, so to speak. It became her own faith. But he was the one who first believed and then it was passed along to her. Verse 12, Therefore sprang there even of one, and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. It's amazing to think from that, from that one belief in pr the promise of God that God has created a nation of people, his people, those who are Abraham's seed, those who believe the promises, who are as innumerable as the stars of the sky and the sand by the seashore. Um, I wouldn't even want to count the grains of sand just in a handful, let alone all the, the sand in all the world. Verse 13, and this is where things get very interesting. Verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the promises. Now wait a minute. I thought Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah received God's promises. What's going on here? They died in faith, not having received the promises? Well, let's let Paul explain a little bit more what he's talking about. But having seen them afar off, so these were promises that they saw far off in the future. God had promised them something far off in the future, and so they saw them. They died in faith, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them. Now, when you're persuaded of something, are you sort of on the fence and saying, well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but I'll just take a chance and see if God's true. And it's like, well, maybe, maybe if God's right, I'll just kind of take this chance. And then if he's right, then I'll, I'll get the good end of the deal. And if he's not, well, it doesn't matter. I mean, you live your life anyway. No, these people were persuaded. That means 100% belief in what God promised them. And it's interesting when you go to Romans 4, it says of Abraham, he said, being fully persuaded that what God promised he was able also to perform and therefore it was imputed unto him for righteousness. So they were persuaded in what God promised. What did God promise to Abraham? That he would give him a child. How did Abraham believe and how was he fully persuaded? When God showed him the stars of the sky and said, I'm creator. And Abraham said, oh yeah, you're creator. You can create a new birth with me and Sarah. Why did I not think of that earlier? So Abraham was fully persuaded in God. So was Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah. But were persuaded of them and embraced them. So not only were they persuaded of God's promise, they embraced God's promises. And when you embrace God's promises, <clears throat> that means that you bring those promises in and you hold them tight to you. You don't let them go. So you're not only are you persuaded that what God says is true, you embrace them into your life. So it affects how you live your life. 
you embrace God's promises. And then it says, and confessed. So not only were they persuaded, so intellectually they were convinced, and then experientially they bring them in and hold the promises close, but they confess. In other words, they tell others, this is what we believe. And people knew. These people believe God's promises, they're persuaded of them, they've embraced them in their life, and they confess to others that these are the promises of God. Now, what was the result of being persuaded, embraced, and confessing the promises of God? Here's what it is. They confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Abraham came out of Ur of the Chaldees, or he came out of Babylon, and people could tell. He went from living in mansions to living in tents. He was looking for a different city. He was looking for a different place. This earth was a place where he was a pilgrim and a stranger. If you're a stranger, that means you don't belong here. Like if, if, if we said, yeah, boy, there was a stranger that was hanging outside of our house last night, that means they don't belong in my house. That's not the place that they live. They are a stranger to my house. And if you're a pilgrim, that means you're passing through. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Sarah, because they saw the promises of God, they were persuaded of them. And they embraced them in their lives. They confessed them. And because of that, they showed by the lives they lived that they were pilgrims and strangers on this earth. So they saw something in the promises of God that were so powerful that what he offered to them was better than anything here on this earth. So that means in modern day language, if there is someone who is a pilgrim and stranger today, if they are given the promise of wealth, a good paying job, the nicest house in town, all of those things, but it comes at the expense of the heavenly city, someone who is a pilgrim and a stranger would say, I don't want that because I'm a pilgrim and a stranger passing through. That has no value or attraction to me. I'm not going to sacrifice the promises of God for what's here on this earth. I'm passing through. And it's interesting, as you go on here, verse 14, it says, For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. So here's the point. If you are a pilgrim and stranger, which means that you would have, that means you would be persuaded and have embraced and confessed the promises of God the same way Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah did. And remember, Abraham's the father of the faithful, so we are to follow Abraham, which means that means we're supposed to be pilgrims and strangers here on the earth. So if we are to be pilgrims and strangers here on this earth, that means that our lives will declare plainly that we seek a heavenly country. And this is some time for some personal introspection. Does your life declare plainly that you are seeking a heavenly country? If you go to work 
Does your life declare plainly that you're seeking a heavenly country? Or do you fit right in and appear like you're trying to get to the top and make the most money and have the most influence and be the most respected and this, that, and the other thing? Those who are pilgrims and strangers on the earth, their lives declare plainly. For those of us who may be physicians, for example, we go to work and we continue the teaching and healing ministry of Jesus Christ. And I have no shame in saying that. But we're not going to work saying, <clears throat> you know, hopefully one of these days um, I'll make the most money in my group and I'll control what everyone else in my group does and I can kind of call the shots and this, that, and the other thing. No, we're pilgrims and strangers. We're passing through and we're continuing the teaching and healing ministry of Jesus Christ. And in whatever other line of work you may do, it's the same thing. So people say, wow, you know, when I went to that doctor, they treated me differently than most doctors. They, they actually made me feel like I was in the presence of Christ today. That, that, was, that was amazing. That's what it means to be a pilgrim and a stranger. Um, so if I heard a pastor say this one time, if people at your work don't know that you're a Christian, it might just be because you're not. And that's something to think about. Do we declare plainly who we believe in, who we are persuaded of, who we confess? So, verse 15, truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. You know, <clears throat> If you miss the world that you gave up, you can always go back. If you come out of Babylon, there's nothing to say that you can't go back. And what Paul is saying here is, is if you're mindful of that country that you came out of, what does it mean to be mindful of that country? Well, you remember how good it was. You might remember those good old songs that Michael Jackson used to sing or something like that um, or Elvis Presley or you name it and you miss it it's like man if I could just hear that song every once in a while that'd be kind of nice or you know I wonder what the playoffs are shaping up to be like this year um, that kind of thing you can always go back but the implication is here Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, they were not mindful of the country they came out of. They didn't want to go back because they had seen the promises of God. And they, they were persuaded of the promises. They embraced them and they confessed them. And they weren't having this straddling the fence experience of like, boy, it sure be nice to just have, you know, some of those good old days back. It's like, no things are so much better with God, why would I want to go back to that? So, <clears throat> verse 16, but now they desire a better country that is in heavenly. And so if you wonder, and of course, you know, Adventists have the message to give to the world, come out of her, my people, to come out of Babylon. And very clearly, the Seventh-day Adventist Church is God's last day church. It's clearly not Babylon. That's unequivocal. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. But we have to ask ourselves in our own personal lives, do we still have Babylon within ourselves? And the way to know that is to 
just do a personal introspective check and say, am I mindful of the country that I came out of? When I gave my life to Jesus and I saw Jesus crucified on the cross for me for my sins and I saw all those sins that put him up there, am I missing those sins now? Do I want to go back to some of those sins that the Lord gave me victory over before? And those who see Christ and him crucified will not be mindful of those things they gave up. They will press on to the mark of the high calling of Christ Jesus. So we desire a better country. What God has to offer for us is better. Amen? And it's a heavenly country. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Now, this is an interesting concept. Notice it says, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Who is God not ashamed to be called their God? Those who are fully persuaded and embrace and confess that they are strangers and pilgrims on the earth and those who desire a be better country. You know, if you read the message to Laodicea, <clears throat> God talks about the shame of our nakedness and he wants to spew us out of his mouth. It, it implies that he's ashamed of his people. Here's a group of people who profess to be God's people, and yet they're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. If we want to have the experience of being clothed with the righteousness of Christ and to have him be proud to be called our God or to not be ashamed, let's go to Hebrews 11 and study the experience of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah. They came out of the land that they grew up in, which was Babylon. They never wanted to go back. They always kept their eyes on that better country, that heavenly country. And because of that, they became strangers and pilgrims on this earth. And God says, those who are strangers and pilgrims on this earth, I'm not ashamed to be called their God. Those are my people. And Abraham is the father of the faithful. And again, Galatians 3 says, they that are Christ are Abraham's seed. So if you are Abraham's seed, it means you are Christ's, which mean you, means you belong to him. So if you belong to Christ, you will be a stranger and a pilgrim here on this earth. And the promise is, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. So has God prepared for you a city? And trust me, it's better than anything here on this earth. If God's prepared it, you know it's going to be the very best. And then continuing on, verse 17, By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Verse 19, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. So Abraham, in Genesis chapter 15, you see it also in Romans 4, is given the promise, you were, you're going to have a child. And Abraham's like, but God, Sarah and I are past childbearing age. But then he believes and God gives him the child. So a miracle happens. Then, years later, God says, take your son, your only son whom you love. So he's like digging the knife in. Your only son whom you love and go kill him. And it doesn't say it in Genesis 22, 
But in Hebrews 11 it says, this is how Abraham reasoned. Okay, God gave me Isaac when Sarah and I were past childbearing age. That was a miracle. That shouldn't have happened. Now he's doing something to me that again doesn't make sense. Humanly speaking, there's no way around this. So let's think about this in the faith realm. Because God can do whatever he wants because he's creator, and because he says that Isaac will be the seed through whom there will be the stars of the sky and the sand by the seashore innumerable, he must plan on raising him up from the dead after I kill him. That's what Hebrews 11 says. Now let's think about this for a minute. When was the first resurrection? Who was the first person to ever be resurrected? It was Moses. Did Moses live before Abraham or after Abraham? He lived after Abraham. So what's Abraham believing in? He's believing in a resurrection of his son, but that's something that's never happened before. But Abraham has already seen something that's never happened before. And so he believes in the creator God who can do things that are impossible. And Enoch was translated without seeing death. And they knew that. Yeah, yeah. Of being translated? Oh, right, sure. That, that's true. That translation is a miracle, definitely. So what we see then is Abraham believes that God can do something that's never happened before. And so when you read the Bible and you see a group of last-day people who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, and you say, well, I've never seen someone who exercises the faith of Jesus or keep the commandments of God, let alone a whole group of people. Well, that's their lack of faith, because if God's word says that's what's going to happen, then I believe it, because what God says is what is, and that's what he says will be. Now, what's interesting is in Genesis 22, when Abraham's about to slay Isaac, the angel stops him and says, Abraham, now I know that you fear God. And in Romans 4, when Abraham believed that God could give him and Sarah a child, it says he was strong in faith, giving glory to God. So Abraham's life is a demonstration of the first angel's message. He feared God. He gave glory to him. He was a pilgrim and stranger here on this earth. He believed in God as creator. And of course, the first angel's message calls us to worship him who is the creator of heaven and earth. So here we see there's a lot of rich material when it comes to the faith of Abraham. And those who will be ready for Jesus to come at the end of the world will have the same faith that Abraham had. Continuing on verse 20, by uh, comment, yes. Uh-huh. Right. That's true. That's a good point. So uh, I almost missed that thought. Um, this was an illustration, of course, of Jesus, the only begotten Son of the Father, 
being actually killed and then he was raised up. But Abraham had the faith to believe that that would be his experience, that yes, he would kill Isaac and then God would raise him back up. So that shows you the kind of faith that Abraham had. And Jesus on the cross believed, even though he couldn't see through the portals of the tomb, that God would raise him back up. So you see, interestingly, that the faith of Abraham is very similar, if not the same, as the faith of Jesus. Very interesting concept. Um, there's something else. That, oh, and the other thing I was going to say that I almost forgot to mention is um, why did God put Abraham through this experience? You know, Abraham's a faithful man. I mean, how dare God put a faithful, trusting, loving, obedient servant of his through such a terrible, horrible experience? How could God do that? Well, let's think about it this way. Abraham believed the promise of God that he would have a child, but then he made a mistake, and Ishmael came along. And you can read about that in the book of Galatians. And so <clears throat> what happens is God knows that Abraham is faithful, but he needed to show the rest of the universe and all of us that when he says Abraham is the father of the faithful, he really is. And here's the demonstration of that. So Abraham, through the demonstration of being willing to sacrifice his only son Isaac, shows that he is as faithful as God says that he is. Now, that also pointed to Christ uh -huh. and what God was going to suffer. Right. Sure. Absolutely. Very good. Now, continuing in verse 20, it says, By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith Jacob, when he was a dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning upon the top of his staff. And so here you see the faithfulness of Isaac and of Jacob. Um, you see how Jacob, right before he dies, goes off in vision and makes a prophetic pronouncement of what will become of his sons. And just in passing, I'll make a little point that some modern tra translations say that he worshipped his staff, and they use that as an excuse to do um, image worship and idol worship and all that. But the proper translation is he worshipped, and he was leaning upon the top of his staff while he worshipped. That's just a minor side point. Verse 22, by faith Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. Verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandments. So here we see the line of faith continue. You have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah. After Jacob, you have Joseph. And then after Joseph, you have Moses' parents. Now what if Moses' parents had not had faith to hide their son Moses. It's in high likelihood he would have been murdered with many of the other young children during that time. But by faith, they hid him and believed that God would protect him. And not only that, so then Pharaoh's daughter decides that she wants to have Moses for a child, but she won't take him until he's 12 years old. So Moses is biologic parents raise him for the first 12 years and the effect of their home influence for those 12 years was so profound 
that when Moses goes to Pharaoh's court, which is the highest honor in the world at that time, the riches, the greatest riches in the world, he was unfazed and he stayed faithful to God. So that's an admonition to all parents here that if you raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord in the right way, they will stay faithful to God no matter what circumstances they may pass through. Verse 24, by faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And you know, in those two verses alone is a rebuke to many Adventist young people of our day. Um, many Adventist young people of our day, and maybe they aren't raised to properly understand the value of heavenly and eternal things the way Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, and Moses' parents understood them. But they go through our schools and they um, see the things of this world, and for some reason they think that um, being like Hollywood or or the entertainment industry or anything like that is, is where it's at. And um, they'd rather enjoy the pleasures that this world have to offer than to be a faithful, God-fearing Christian who loves the Lord with all their hearts. But here is someone who was raised for 12 years by his parents and then got thrown into the the most ungodly environment possible with the greatest temptations possible. I mean, Moses could have had it all. I mean, he, he, he could have been the next Pharaoh and he could have had whatever he wanted. And yet he refused to partake of that, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. But notice verse 26, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. And I'll tell you what, when you see what Jesus went through in Gethsemane and on the cross and the choice that he made to die for us, to save us from our sins. And if our hearts are melted by his love for us, there's nothing in this world that will break that, that love for us. We will want to have God fully embraced into our lives. And nothing that the world has to offer us will break that bond. And Moses is an example of that. He esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Continuing on, verse 27, By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured, as seeing him who is invisible. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. So now we're going down into the history of the children of Israel and leaving the land of Egypt. Verse 28, Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood. Oh, sorry, verse 29, by faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians assaying to do were drowned. And that, you know, is an amazing story of how the children of Israel step foot into the Red Sea, the Red Sea parts, the bottom of the ground is dry and they pass through no problem. Then Pharaoh and his army comes in and they get stuck in the mud and then the water comes over them and drowns them. And yet, after that, the children of Israel didn't have faith when they started running out of water and food. And yet we think, of, we look at that story and we're like, man, they're so weak in faith, but what about us? So God gives us wonderful divine providences in our lives. And then um, we get a flat tire on the side of the road. And we're like, you know, if God loved me, he never would have let that happen. 
Um, and we do that. I mean, we laugh because we do that. But hopefully we'll grow in our experience in faith. Continuing on verse 30, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. Verse 31, by faith the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. So it's interesting, God was even able to reach a harlot. No one is unreachable. And in fact, it is through the line of, of Rahab that Christ came. So talk about redemption. Verse 32, and what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah, of David also and Samuel and of the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lion, mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant and fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. So you see Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David and Samuel in verse 32 and then verses 33 and 34 describe what they did and you can read the story for example of Gideon, Barak and Jephthah in the book of Judges. We of course know Samson, David and Samuel and their stories but it's interesting so these people were victorious they were able to conquer their foes. But then, and then continuing on in verse 35, women received their dead raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. So sometimes exercising faith, God gives you a mighty victory in an impossible circumstance. And other times, God lays you to rest, and you know that you have a better resurrection waiting you. So you don't know what it's going to be. But whatever faith God calls you to have, whether it's passing through a near-death experience and being saved, or being laid to rest, to be raised up in a better resurrection. Either way, that is faith. Continuing on, verse 36, And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Now think about this. It says the world was not worthy of these people. Is the world worthy of us? If we're pilgrims and strangers, the world will not be worthy of us because we do not belong here. And to be a pilgrim and stranger could mean to be stoned, stoned, sawn asunder, um, slain with a sword. You know, the time of trouble is coming. We don't know what we may go through. But if we have faith, we will be like these people. And whether we escape and like Enoch are translated without seeing death, or whether we're like the prophet Isaiah who was sawn in half, we're going to be faithful. And it's interesting. We're going to talk about this in our next class, which will be two weeks from now. We're going to talk about what it means when it says, these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God having provided some better thing for us. What does that mean? How in the world could these have not received the promise? We'll study that next time. So we'll do that in two weeks.